Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa rise and shine This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Ann Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figilelingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa's president reiterates importance of multilateralism. And, ma- and major victory for Kenya in fight against female circumcision. In economics news, Standard & Poor's says South Africa's 2021 budget lacks focus. And in sports news, a European golf tour returns to Kenya without spectators. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. Rescuers have retrieved 12 bodies of children who drowned near a popular beach in southern Ghana. They were part of a group aged between 14 and 17 who had gone for a swimming outing on Sunday at Apam Town. Parents and locals have gathered at the shore to wait for news of those still missing. Some bodies were retrieved on Monday and others on Tuesday. Beaches in Ghana remain shut to prevent the spread of COVID-19, but the children are said to have avoided using the main route to the beach to avoid being stopped. Speculation is rife on social media on the whereabouts of Tanzania's President John uh, Pombe Makafuli with one Kenyan newspaper alleging that he may be admitted in one of the country's private hospitals. Opposition leader Tandu Lisu has questioned Makafuli's whereabouts as he has not been seen in public for two weeks now. Sirakimani reports. While the Kenyan newspaper did not mention the Tanzanian head of state by name, it described his government's reluctance to adhere to COVID-19 protocols. It quoted diplomatic sources indicating that the leader has been on a ventilator and that he has been ailing for weeks now. The report further says he arrived in Kenya on Monday. Still in Kenya, former opposition leader Raila Odinga is said to be admitted at the same hospital after he complained of fatigue. The 76-year-old politician has been on the campaign trail to popularize an initiative aimed at changing the country's constitution. A Senegalese opposition group has suspended plans for three days of huge protests called by opposition leader Osmane Sonko. Sonko was freed from detention on Monday but still faces a rape charge which he says is politically motivated. At least eight people have died during days of violent protests in Senegal sparked by the arrest of Sonko on charges of public disorder. Sonko denies he is trying to overthrow President Macky Sall who has called for calm. Sall has promised to shorten a curfew and provide extra funding for entrepreneurship. The British Foreign Secretary Dominic Robb has denied as completely false the claim by one of his EU's most senior officials that London has banned all COVID-19 vaccine exports. The President of the European Council made the comment in a weekly briefing note, the BBC's Helen Catt reports. It's understood the Foreign Secretary has written to Mr Michel to set the record straight, saying that the UK government had not blocked the export of a single COVID-19 vaccine or components. 
Mr. Michel responded on social media, saying there were different ways of imposing bans or restrictions, and that he was glad if the UK reaction led to more transparency and increased exports. It's understood that a representative of the EU's delegation to the UK has been summoned to a meeting at the Foreign Office following concerns that the claim had been repeated at various levels within the EU and the Commission. And finally, the British royal family says it's taking allegations of racism very seriously. The Duchess of Sussex raised the allegations in a television interview. A statement issued on behalf of Queen Elizabeth says the concerns will be addressed privately. The BBC's Nicholas Witchell has the details. The palace could have been much more combative. They could have pushed back much more firmly against the Sussex version of events. But clearly, they don't want a war of words. So, yes, it is conciliatory. It's reaching out, I think. It is gently challenging. There is this phrase, some recollections may vary. Well, you bet they do. Within the palace, that is an understatement, I think, to put it mildly. But there is, of course, an acknowledgement of the seriousness and the significance of the issues raised, particularly that of race. They want to work this out within the family. That's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. At 7.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. To Nigeria now, where traders from the northern parts of a country have agreed to resume food supply to southern states and end the blockade that began on February the 25th. The Amalgamated Union of Foodstuff and Cattle Dealers of Nigeria had embarked on the blockade in protest against the alleged killing of its members, among other issues. Channel Africa's Nusa, Collins Nusa Dohingbe has more from Lagos. The food blockade left no one in doubt that in the event of any north-south hostility in Nigeria, food will form part of the weapons to be used. While the start, where talks of retaliation was already being canvassed, will not hesitate to use such items as a petroleum product supply to bring the north to its knees. But the hostile situation was promptly checked through the intervention of the governor of Kogi State, Yaya Belo, working on the directives of Abuja to get a pledge from both divides on the need to resume business without obstacles. The Kogi State Governor, Yaya Belo, after meeting with the leadership of the produce sellers from the north, declared the agreement reached while the president of the Traders Union, Mohamed Tahil, announced that the strike had been called off. I've gotten the commitment of the union to lift their ban on the transportation of food items to the south. And we've gotten the commitment also that their lives and their livelihoods moving forward will be protected. We agree to call off our nationwide strike. While the blockade lasted, commissioners for agriculture of states in southern Nigeria, especially the southwest, went into a meeting to discuss steps to be taken to reduce dependence on food and livestock supplies from the north and to shore up food stores of the enclave in the event of any future incident 
incident of food blockade amidst reports of possible reprisal from the south. Dr. Kayode Oyeleye, a public affairs analyst, says Nigerians should shy away from acts of retaliation. Now, there is actually an unfortunate development, but of course, right now, the commissioners of agri in the southwestern state have been meeting, trying to put heads together and think about what can be done. Uh, well, some of the narratives that people are bringing up, retaliation and all of that, I don't think we should be going that direction. We should be going towards the direction of how can we harness our strength. No, what was visible to most people was the food blockade from the north to the south. The real danger to food security is related to the problems faced by farmers in the danger posed by the presence of bandits who attack, kidnap and kill farmers across the country. An agro-allied expert and analyst, Paul Ilona, says the Food Development Council of Nigeria has a task to ensure that the country is saved from the woes of food insecurity. Why wouldn't an agrarian country like Nigeria ensure that farmers have a living environment to go to their farms? Why wouldn't we just simply ensure that? And going from that trend, we're now getting to the point now where even food is blocked from going from one part of the country to another. The case of the headsmen, menace have been discussed several. I think the Food Security Council has a lot to do if Nigeria is to continue to grow to become a great nation. The question raised by Paul Ilona is what every Nigerian would like to have the government answer, but there is more than meet the eyes in the problem which farmers have to contend with. Amina Bala Jubri, leader of the Association of Small Agro Producers in Bauchi State, Northwest Nigeria, says banditry is affecting agricultural activities. Insecurity has really affected us because when you go to the farm, you will be kidnapped. The kidnappers and abductors are there. Those that were lucky to produce, they were not allowed to harvest until they pay certain amount. The bandits leave a message or attack you. They'll say, if you don't pay so-so amount, don't come to the farm. If you come, you'll be killed. The lingering problem of extortion by security personnel at checkpoints while transporting goods across the country, taxes imposed on farmers by bandits, which in many instances result in waste of farm produces, since lots of farmers are not able to harvest their crops, and the deliberate act of leading cattle into people's farms, thereby destroying farms and stored harvest, as well as weather, were identified as major threat to food security, for which the Amalgamated Union of Food and Livestock Traders has now placed a 4.7 billion naira, which is about $8 million compensation demand on the Nigerian government. Suleiman Aribabu, a major player in the agro-allied industry, says there is more to the reason for the blockade. So the compensation part is not about the blockade. The blockade is to force the compensation. Those who said, oh, we lost a lot of lives and produce due to violence down south during the NSAS and then up to the Shasha incident, people were killed. So they then asked for 475 billion naira. The reason why we continue to have insecurity is because at the end of the day, government will come and help those who have been affected, but those who perpetrated all the crimes will be left to go unpunished. Both up north and down here, people have been involved in violence, in killing, in looting, in destruction of produce needs to face the music. There is a lot more that is injuring and hampering food security in Nigeria. Farmers are complaining about insecurity of lives now. In Nasarawa in 2019, too much rain destroyed the rice. 
While efforts continue to put bandits out of business and increase the level of investment in agribusiness, Abuja is looking into ways of sustaining its plans to ensure that Nigeria has food sufficiency. But for now, the atrocities of the Modaro's Fulani headsmen, which rightly or wrongly is being seen as a deliberate act to create food scarcity in Nigeria, has left many farmlands fallow and farmers now live in fear of losing their lives if they are not able to meet the ransom demanded by kidnappers. From Lagos, I am Collins Nusato for Channel Africa News. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has put forward the close coordination of African countries in the face of a coronavirus pandemic as an example of multilateralism best practice in dealing with the challenges facing the world today. He was speaking in an informal virtual United Nations Leaders Networking session to take stock of global challenges that confront the multilateral system while setting out priorities for the future. Ramaphosa warned that COVID-19 was a major challenge for multilateralism and that the truest measure of success would be how the international collective rises to it. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The South African president told a group of peers hosted by his counterparts in Spain and Sweden that a strengthened multilateral system was key to tackling problems from the pandemic to climate change and economic development. We face a situation where the world is confronted by a fraying, a weakening multilateral system which we need to embolden and to strengthen. But we also are now living in a world where there's, a, there's rising nationalism and uh, we see it manifested in many, many ways. And we, we've just recently seen the ugly side of it with vaccine nationalism, where the more developed countries that are able to develop vaccines are hoarding the vaccines because of their muscle power in terms of finance. They've gone out and they've bought up all the vaccines and ordering much uh, up to 10 times more than what their own populations need and uh, almost denying access to more developing countries. Adding to this nationalistic trend, Ramaphosa pointed to rising racism, gender inequality and growing frustration at the slow pace of economic relief for poorer countries battling the pandemic. Secretary General has referred to special drawing rights, uh, part of uh, the work that we've had to do as a continent is to deal with issues of debt that many countries on the continent have. And we've been to the various uh, financing institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, as, as, a, as Africa, uh, talking together with one voice. And I've been advocating for special drawing rights to be increased. And it almost seems like we are just whistling in the wind because the message is not being heeded and the more developed countries are hoarding the special drawing rights that they have. And this is another area which I believe needs to be addressed very seriously. The former AU chair used Africa's collaboration as it confronted the pandemic in its early stages as a case in point. From strengthening the Africa CDC to establishing a centralized Africa medical supplies platform to eliminate competition for much needed personal protective equipment. We felt that we needed to be up there with the developing 
with the developed countries. And we could only do so when we acted as one. And this is where we have seen the strength of a multilateral system in Africa, where the African Union uh, really became strengthened in dealing with the pandemic. Uh, admittedly, uh, the extent of uh, infections on the whole continent was not as high as in many other parts of the world. Uh, a few countries were really devastated, South Africa and a few other countries in the north. But at the same time, the working together, the collaboration uh, was at a very high level and we were able uh, to put our best foot forward. Supporting calls for a global governance system that enhances the toolbox in tackling an array of challenges, including on vaccines, to ensure that no country is left behind. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. It's 7.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Manufacturing capacity is one of the major constraints facing the COVAX facility, a global initiative aimed at equitable access and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. That was a view shared by a senior official with Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, which is co-leading the facility along with the World Health Organization and the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. The COVAX facility will have distributed around 35 million doses to more than 50 countries in the next week, while comparatively richer countries and regions streak ahead in their distribution and administration of vaccines. Show and Rice Peace reports. By the end of this week, close to 100 million vaccine doses will have been administered in the USA alone. More than 22 million in the UK, more than 300 million doses in the wider European region. And while COVAX has met its forecast timelines, with the first shipments arriving in West Africa in late February, the stress test for the multilateral system remains acute, as Gabi's managing director of country programs, Tabani Maposa, explains. It's also important uh, to note that uh, uh, we are still delivering uh, slightly less uh, than we would have hoped uh, at this particular time. Uh, and uh, the truth is, uh, this has a lot to do uh, with uh, the supply constraint uh, that uh, we are dealing with. We are trying to spread the love as much as we can, uh, but uh, it is, uh, it is a, 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 finite, a finite pie uh, that uh, can only stretch so far. Maposa confirmed that COVAX donor pledges of some $6.3 billion had reduced their shortfall to around $2 billion as concern shifts from financing to manufacturing and supply. When we engage with, uh, with, with countries, uh, especially the rich, we normally say that uh, we extremely appreciate uh, the resources that you have provided to us. But uh, these uh, resources uh, count for nothing uh, if we are not going to get the volumes that we need. 
uh, for the other world. So uh, it's really uh, uh, reminding everybody that it's not just about the money at hand, but it's also about the vaccines at hand. But it's also with the manufacturers as well. Uh, they, there is a conversation to be had here uh, with manufacturers uh, in terms of uh, the commitments and the promises they have made uh, and whether they adhere to those uh, both in the spirit and in the letter of the commitments that uh, that we've had. And so uh, behind the scenes, uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, tough conversations that we are having. In a race not only against time, but against mutations, with the emergence of virus variants that are likely to test longer-term vaccine efficacy. From Gavi's perspective, uh, clearly equity is at the heart of it. And so for us, it becomes a moral argument. Uh, a moral argument that uh, really, uh, if, uh, if Africa is going to be left behind or Asia is going to be left behind, uh, the truth is uh, any progress that is made in any country uh, is, is not sufficient uh, uh, or is not going to go far enough uh, as long as it leaves, leaves others behind. Uh, we have been uh, having the mantra that says uh, uh, we are not safe until everybody is safe. Uh, and, and, and this is true. And we have seen it with the, the South African variant. We have seen it with the Brazilian variant. We have seen it with the British variant. What it means is that uh, the longer we leave the virus unattended out there, the higher the chances that it will mutate. While negotiations continue around intellectual property waivers at the World Trade Organization to speed up access to vaccines, therapeutics and diagnostics, Maposa points to manufacturing capacity as the immediate impediment to wider access. The supply constraints are not an intellectual property issue. They are actually an issue of manufacturing capacity uh, and an investment on that uh, side of things. And so uh, Gavi's position is uh, we need to double down in expanding the manufacturing capacity because right now the biggest thing that we need to respond to uh, is, uh, is the supply constraint. The World Health Organization recently lauding a partnership between Johnson & Johnson and rival pharmaceutical company Merck to collaborate on manufacturing J&J's vaccine in an effort to speed up global vaccine capacity and supply. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. How easy is it to shun traditional African cultural practices that have defined a community? Can national laws work where tradition has hindered an end to traditional harmful practices? Tough questions with no easy answers. In Kenya, this past weekend, Samburu community elders closed ranks with the government and vowed to stop circumcising their girls. This is a major victory in Kenya's fight against a harmful practice, which although illegal, continues unabated due to strong t- traditional beliefs. Our crew in Kenya witnessed the event and filed this report. Solemn declaration sealed in a traditional prayer, a landmark decision by the custodians of the Samburu culture in Kenya. On Saturday, in a little known village of Kisima, traditional elders invited national leaders to witness their vow to end an old age culture, female circumcision. Matthew Nebe is a traditional elder in Samburu. 
we affirm our commitment to end female genital mutilation and, mar and, early mar and child marriages in our community. We commit to the protection of our women and girls from harmful cultural practices through creating awareness in our community and promoting education for the girl child. We therefore lift the curse that has been bestowed on the uncircumcised girls. And as traditional gatekeepers, we bless all girls who have not undergone and will not undergo female genital mutilation in the future. In Kenya, at least one in five women and girls between the ages of 15 and 49 have been circumcised despite the East African nation having outlawed the practice in 2011. Among the Samburu, any girl who refuses to undergo the practice is declared an outcast. In 2019, Kenya's president, Uhuru Kenyatta, pledged to end female genital mutilation by 2022. Many at the time saw it as an unrealistic goal. Saturday's landmark decision, a win in the fight against the practice which involves the partial or total removal of the female genitalia with serious health consequences. President Kenyatta. So today we are here to help the girls of Kenya better themselves. Today we are here to work with your parents and your elders and to plead with them to allow the girls of Kenya to be able to take their rightful position in society alongside their male counterparts. The declaration is likely to hold as the Samburu are a patriarchal community and this decision has been sanctioned and agreed upon by the men who have previously cast and refused to marry uncircumcised girls. Margaret Kobia is a cabinet secretary in charge of gender in Kenya. One of the interventions is where we brought in elders because they are the decision makers. The United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, estimates that at least 4 million girls and women are at the risk of female genital mutilation every year, making the global goal of ending FGM and other traditional harmful practices by 2030 a pipe dream. Kenya now hopes with Saturday's declaration it is closer to its own goal of protecting its girls and women from such traditional harmful practices by 2022. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. It's 7.26 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission has proposed a reduction of identity numbers on the voters' roll in an effort to protect voters' privacy and prevent fraud. The commission appeared before Parliament's Home Affairs Committee to give an update on amendments to the Electoral Laws Amendment Bill. The amendments are as a result of a 2016 constitutional court ruling that addresses of eligible voters should be included on the voters' roll. The bill was approved by the National Assembly, but the National Council of Provinces raised concerns about privacy. Celine Merrington reports. In an effort to address lawmakers' concerns about privacy, the IEC has proposed the reduction of a few digits of voters' ID numbers. The IEC's Deputy Chief Electoral Officer for Electoral Operations, Maseho Sheburi, explains the proposal. The vote. We will provide the voters' role with the full names, it will contain the address where we have an address. However, the parliament, if this bill is passed, would make it clear that certain digits of the voters' roll would be, would be redacted so that uh, we preserve 
the, uh, the privacy rights uh, of the voters. MPs have raised concerns about the potential abuse of information such as ID numbers and addresses on the voters' roll. Sheburi also made a proposal that there is no longer unfettered access to the voters' roll, as is currently the case. Access, if this version is accepted, must be linked to a prescribed purpose. And there are three broad purposes. The first is that the person must aware that they require a copy of the voters' roll in order to monitor election. Or they require it for statistical research or scholarly purposes. Three, that they require it for a purpose that is already prescribed in law or in the constitution. Home Affairs Minister Arun Mutswaledi emphasized that the bill must be finalized before Parliament rises for the Easter recess, as the country is due to hold local government elections later this year. He says the amended legislation is aimed at ensuring elections remain free, fair and legitimate. Now let me answer Honourable Chagu, but I must say that uh, his fears, as far as I'm concerned, is mostly about the address where I stay. Unfortunately, that one is beyond our control. The constitutional court has already made the ruling. The area where we can safeguard our identities is on the ID, and that's why we are talking about uh, redacting. Now, Honourable Bruce is worried about that. Let me explain this way, Chairperson. We may finally not even issue digit number eight, nine, ten. That is the one that is dangerous for fraud to marry you off, to get into your, your, your contracts, to get into your, your, your bank accounts and all that. So there is a, a very clear balance. Everything that Mr. Lewis has asked, it can easily be resolved uh, 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 through this redacting. The committee will meet again on Friday to further deliberate on this proposed legislation. Zaline Merrington. Parliament. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Again, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Again. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. It's 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. In the headlines, rescuers have retrieved 12 bodies of children who drowned near a popular beach in southern Ghana. They were part of a group aged between 14 and 17 who had gone for a swimming outing on Sunday at Apam Town. Speculation is rife on social media on the whereabouts of Tanzania's President John Makafuli, with one Kenyan newspaper alleging that he may be admitted in one of the country's private hospitals. And a Senegalese opposition group has suspended plans for 
three days of huge protests called by opposition leader Osmane Sonko. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Anne. It's 7.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Now, there will only be more economic opportunities unlocked for women in South Africa when women are put in leadership positions within public and private organizations and are then able to help make such positions more accessible to more women. This is the view of Divya Vasant, Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of the social business Amazi Group. Amazi has an incubation program that empowers women to start their own ventures by equipping them with the infrastructure, training and ongoing mentoring support to build sustainable incomes through Amazi's commercial stores. Vasant now joins us on the line to further discuss the impact especially for black women. Good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Divya, firstly, briefly talk us through the need to achieve transformation in business for black females. How would you describe the current situation? So I think the first thing to clarify for me is that diversity and transformation isn't only about social justice. It's actually an economic imperative. We are all economically worse off when women, especially black women, aren't included as equal participants in our economy. And I think from a representation perspective, women form just over half the consumer base and roughly about half our workforce. So proportionally, you know, when we look at the consumer spend and the power of consumer spend among women alone, it's important that women have seats to make decisions about the products and the services and the financing needs that they're consuming. Right now, however, women are sorely underrepresented in our economy. I mean, if you look, for example, at the amount of financial resource that flows to women, just a proportion of global dollars flowing to female founders is just over 2%. Just over 2%. And as soon as you add a man to a founding team, the proportion of dollars that goes to that company goes up to about 15%. So when we look at the access women have to resource and the access women have to market, it is still so far below what is equal. And that needs to change. Now, how exactly can organizations assist in the transformation for black females? Well, I think the biggest thing to do systemically, when we encourage women to take up leadership positions or start their own businesses, what we're doing is if we don't change the system to accommodate women, we're asking women, especially black women, to challenge the status quo every day. You know, the main requirement to gain access to finance or to gain access to market is to have what organizations term a credible trading history. But that becomes a circuitous argument because when have women had the opportunity to trade so that there is a history to reference? So it becomes a question of how do we openly accommodate our systems so that 
women have the opportunity to start something and it shouldn't be a burden that they bear to include themselves in a system that was built to exclude them. The system should bear the burden of trying to figure out how to include women. That means from a banking perspective, institutions need to think differently about how to offer finance products that are specific to women. From a tax perspective, SARS needs to think differently about how women-founded businesses are taxed, you know, particularly when it comes to small businesses. Um, from a governance perspective, right up to the CITC, we need to think differently about how we encourage women to register businesses. And when the system starts moving to accommodate women, so more women can start up their own organizations. Let's speak about uh, inclusion and diversity in transformation for black women. Well, I think if we take it right down to unconscious bias, you know, we're all victims of unconscious bias. It's human nature. We are wired to create to support, to find community with what is familiar to us. So when we speak about the need for diversity, it's not about one gender or one race or one grouping of people being better than another. It's actually about the fact that the concentration of decision-making by one particular group in any given space is not healthy. It's not productive. And it's not good for the collective. And that results in spaces being created to, in the image of only one group. And that's what's happened with us in South Africa. Um, if we acknowledge that through unconscious bias, we have excluded black women, we can understand why the need to start including them in spaces is important from a social perspective, from an economic perspective. The, the problem that we face, though, is that we need to admit the unconscious bias that we've all been held hostage to. Um, when I started Amazi, you know, I co-founded the social impact brand. And I think both my co-founder and I realized that as young black women, we are daring to create for a woman in a man's world. And that means we're declaring war on the status quo every day. Um, and that's simply because the spaces that we all walk into on a daily basis were never made with us in mind. They weren't created in our image. Um, the people who sat in the decision-making positions to create those spaces didn't look like us. So, you know, the question around how we break up that economic concentration, that is an important question. And the only way to do that is to have more black women rise and it's to have more black women start organizations. And it's healthy for all of us. It's healthy for, for, for the collective. Now, talk us through your organization as efforts in supporting transformation. You touched on it a bit, um, you know, just looking at what Amazi Group does. Um, you know, what sort of uh, uh, your programs? Are you looking at certain industries? Are you open across the board for different industry sectors? Can any woman walk in or be in contact, get in contact with you with regards to um, getting guidance and assistance and setting up a business venture? Absolutely. Um, so we're a social impact brand and we create opportunities for women who don't have access to the resource and support to learn and earn, particularly with focus in the wellness industry. However, the access to information and knowledge and community that we provide is applicable across industries to any woman who's looking to empower herself. 
Um, but essentially a little bit of detail about Amazi, we develop unemployed young women through a holistic training program that offers soft skills, accredited technical beauty skills, and opportunities to apprentice within our Amazi stores. And also within our stores, we help women start and grow micro-businesses while they trade with us and grow their income. And over the course of that process, we provide them with business mentoring so that the income that they create is sustainable. Um, the important thing about Amazi, though, that I wanted to chat to you about is how we fund and develop women. We direct the money that women spend on their self-care at our stores. And specifically, when women choose to get their treatments done at our stores, we're able to amplify the money that they spend by unlocking further funding that we collectively direct to develop women and women-owned micro-business. And why that's important for us is because 90% of female customers think that it's important for a brand to be purpose-driven and to create positive impact in this world. And we're doing just that. So as a woman, if championing other women is important to you, then simply by booking your next treatment at one of our stores, you are actively investing in the development of another woman. And that for us is the power of women and their spending. We see women as investors. They're not just consumers. So when you spend a rand as a woman, you're actually making an investment decision. And that's what we think is phenomenal about the power women have in South Africa to invest in the development of other women. Well, Divya, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you so much for having me. That's Divya Vasant, Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of a social business, Amazi Group, joining us on the line. It's 7.41 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The size of the South African economy shrank by 7% last year, the biggest decline in 75 years. This says hard lockdown measures to curb the spread of the coronavirus pandemic took their toll on various industries. New figures released by statistics all... All major sectors recorded declines for the full year. Tsepamungwai reports. Figures released by Statistics South Africa have confirmed that 2020 was a difficult year for the local economy. Growth tanked by a massive 7%. The construction industry took the biggest hit from COVID restrictions, declining by a massive 20.3%. The closure of air travel contributed to a decline in transport and tourism industry. But the biggest victims were ordinary South Africans, many of whom are still battling to feed their families and pay their debts. Professor Raymond Parsons is with the University of Northwest. I think when we talk about 7% or 6% whatever it may be, I think we must just emphasize that behind that number last year, lay a great deal of hardship. So we paid a high price for the pandemic last year. The negative growth figure for 2020 demonstrate the serious loss that households and business have suffered in terms of widespread business failure, huge job losses and massive shrinkages in disposable income. But there is an emerging silver lining. 
The GDP fourth quarter figure for 2020 showed that economic output grew by 1.5% in the three months to December, marking a 6.3% growth rate compared to 2019. This could improve the economic story in 2021. Most recent data suggests that a strong recovery is on the way. This comes as South Africa continues to bolster its lockdown exit strategy. And the pace and scale of vaccine rollout could determine the country's fortunes in the next few months. If all goes according to plan, the expected economic rebound could amount to about 3% growth this year. Parsons explains. But the good news is that we have a much better outlook this year. And I think against the background of last year, we are now looking to a rebound in our economy this year. Now, I emphasize, as many others have done, we're talking about a rebound. But nonetheless, that's good news, because although it's off a low base, it means that things will get better as the year unfolds. It will depend on a number of factors, including on the health front. Prospects of positive global economic trends could give a helping hand to our growth. Others have urged South African business to take advantage of the recent signs of economic recovery by exploring opportunities that the Africa continental free trade areas presents. Professor Pumela Mzueli is the executive dean of the UNISA School of Business. And, and again, this is positive news for uh, the Africa continental free trade agreement. As we are aware, the, the doors of the marketplace, which is the rest of Africa, opened on the 1st of, of January. This is good news for South Africa. Now, obviously, for South African uh, SMMEs, the focus should be on those sectors that have shown uh, vital life force, especially the agricultural sector. We all know that the agricultural sector is responsible for taking um, developing countries and poor economies out of poverty. As the country tries to figure out ways to achieve sustainable growth, there are many risks and uncertainties that still exist. But for now, South Africa will be judged on its ability to restore national output and employment to their pre-pandemic levels. I am Tsepo Mungwai in Johannesburg. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Good morning. The Dean of the University of South Africa School of Business, Professor Pumela Msueli, has called on South African companies to use the envisaged economic recovery after the coronavirus lockdowns to take advantage of the opportunities that the Africa Continental Free Trade Area presents. The economy recorded a second consecutive quarter of growth in the fourth quarter after plummeting in the second quarter of last year during the hard lockdown. Statistics South Africa's new figures show that the economy performed better than expected in the fourth quarter last year at a 6.3% annualized growth rate. Manufacturing, agriculture and construction were the biggest drivers of growth. Professor Msueli says this is a welcome development. And, and again, this is positive news for uh, the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. As we are aware, the, the doors 
of the marketplace, which is the rest of Africa, opened on the 1st of, of January. This is good news for South Africa. Now, obviously, for South African uh, SMMEs, the focus should be on those sectors that have shown a vital life force, especially the agricultural sector. We all know that the agricultural sector is responsible for taking um, developing countries and poor economies out of poverty. South Africa's economy contracted for the first time in 11 years in 2020 as coronavirus lockdowns hampered the economy by disrupting trade and output. Gross domestic product shrank 7% compared with the 0.2% expansion in 2019, according to a report released by Statistics South Africa Tuesday. It is the economy's first annual contraction since 2009 when GDP fell 1.5%. Stats SA said the fall is mainly due to declines in industry, commerce, restaurants and hotels. Meanwhile, economist Azajamin has warned against taking the slight improvement in South Africa's economy for granted. The economy recorded a second consecutive uh, quarter of growth in the fourth quarter after plummeting in the second quarter of last year during the hard lockdown. Jamin says government should do more to ensure that current economic growth is sustained. The important thing to bear in mind is that this slight revival in economic activity is not a panacea that will last indefinitely. If we do not address things like corruption, state-owned enterprises, and this independent power producers to produce electricity, introduce broadband spectrum. If we do not uh, improve our educational system, and if we do not embark upon massive infrastructural investment, that source of job creation, come 2022, our economic growth rate will fall back to what it was. We were already in a recession prior to the onset of the COVID-19 crisis. Zimbabwe's biggest brewer and distributor of spirits, wines and ciders, says the sales volumes grew 39% in the six months to December. And the company sees a further growth and anticipated better harvests. The company sells brands such as Viceroy and Clip Drift, Smino Vodka, a Sting Spirit Cooler, Amarula, Hunters and Savannah Ciders, as well as Niederberg Wines. Sales volumes were up despite prohibitions on travel and social gatherings for much of 2020. Airlink Limited, a privately owned South African airline, has introduced direct flights between Cape Town and Namibia's Volvis Bay. The flights are scheduled for Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays, according to a statement released by the Namibia Airport's company. The route, which started operating on the 2nd of March, is Airlink's fourth between South Africa and Namibia, with other services linking Cape Town and Ventook in addition to flights from Johannesburg to Ventook and Volvis Bay. The route will also enable seamless multi-city travel itineraries for international and local tourists visiting popular destinations in Namibia and South Africa. The US dollar is a trading at 379.99 Nigerian Naira, 10.96 Botswana Pula, 108.79 Kenyan Shilling, and a 21.93 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, I'll start in Brazil. One US dollar there trades at 5 real 84. Russia, 74 rubles 10. India, 72 rupees 94. China, 61.51. And in South Africa, a dollar is a trading at 15 rand 38.
It's also trading at 72 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold is a trading at $1,711 and a platinum $1,157 per ounce brand crude oil is at $67.10 a barrel from an African perspective. Our sports update up next with Figure Lilingwati. And we begin with football news. Bafana Bafana coach Mulif Inzeki is upbeat that they will book their place in next year's Africa Cup of Nations in Cameroon. Bafana Bafana faced tough assignments later this month against Ghana and Sudan in the AFCON qualifiers. Bafana are determined to secure back-to-back victories against Ghana and Sudan. They are currently second in Group C, level on points with Ghana. They will face Sudan away on the 28th of March. Nzeki says they are aware of the tough challenge. We are told uh, it will be very hot uh, when we play that match at 4 o'clock in Sudan. Uh, so these are the conditions that um, we are more worried about. And these are the conditions that we are mentally and physically preparing ourselves uh, to go and, and do well against Sudan in Sudan. As much as um, uh, the points will be very important, the results will be very important uh, for both countries, but uh, we give ourselves uh, an edge over, over Sudan to say uh, getting results in Sudan, uh, definitely uh, we will be able to go and represent South Africa in the AFCON. And that is actually our, our target, that is actually our objective uh, to qualify and represent uh, South Africa in the AFCON. The Magical Kenya Open and Kenya Savannah Classic Golf Tournaments will be held this year after being cancelled in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but without spectators. The tournaments part of the European PGA Tour take place in month and will see players and their kids confined to a sporting bubble to curb the spread of the disease. According to Kenya Open Golf Limited Chairman Peter Kanyangu, the European Tour is offering each player 2,300 US dollars in both events to offset the cost of staying in the sporting bubble. The bubble will seal regular testing and the players and staff will be required to travel solely between the course and hotel during the tournament. And Novak Djokovic says it has taken a lot of blood, sweat and tears to break Roger Federer's record of 310 weeks, ranked as world number one. A 33-year-old Serb set the record on Monday for most weeks at number one in the 48-year history of the ATP rankings. Djokovic won his 18th Grand Slam singles title and his 9th Australian Open crown in Melbourne last month. And finally, with canoeing, the Kenya canoe team hopes of qualifying for the Tokyo Olympic Games hit a snag after the squad of three athletes were denied boarding passes to depart for Spain. The team consisting of Samuel Muturi, Livias Karanja, and Daniel Chomba were destined for Barcelona, Spain, but it was stopped to board their scheduled flight by KLM airline from the German Kenyatta International Airport despite having visas. The reason given for the denial of boarding was that the visas issued by the Spanish embassy for purpose of the travel 
could not allow them the team to transit through Amsterdam, a Schengen area, which was the flight route to Barcelona. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutora Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. On taking us to the top of our for the news is Stimela with a song titled Whispers in the Deep. Goodbye and keep safe. <laughs>